listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. So much to talk about this next hour. So much to get through. Let's begin with the escalation by elementary teachers. This just out. The ETFO, uh, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, now increasing its strike. Uh, in next week, we will have, if you're in the Toronto area, two days where kids will not be in school. That will be Thursday. February the 6th and Friday, February the 7th. There's also also rotating strikes if you're in Hamilton, for example, or if you're in York Region. Those are on different days, but that is an escalation by ETFO. We are keeping our eye on that story and get you the response from the government. But I want to get going with what's happening right now at Queen's Park and the confirmation that, indeed, we do have a confirmed coronavirus case in Ontario. A second suspected case is continuing to be investigated. The person with the coronavirus is in hospital. The person with the suspected case is at home. We have a live update currently underway at Queen's Park. I want to take you there right now. Obviously have been cuts to public health. Are those cutbacks impeding or slowing down uh, the testing for patients with possible coronavirus? You know, there's no compromise in public health response. You're listening to Dr. David Williams, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health. The actual uh, handling of the test once it's received in a public health laboratory in Ontario takes uh, 24 to 36 hours. If it comes back positive by our testing, then, as Dr. Yaffe has already alluded to, a sample immediately is sent to the National Microbiological Laboratory in Winnipeg, and that usually takes them, once a receipt of the sample, another 48 hours to come up with their final answer. Uh, Meanwhile, while those are running in parallel, there's sometimes what we call other viral panels or tests for common ones such as normal coronavirus, uh, influenza. Uh, I'm giving you a bunch of names of viruses, but this is all that's circling, and hospitals and labs are equipped with those panels, if you may, to do that testing to rule in or rule out other common respiratory viruses at this time. And while those tests are being done, are the possible patients, are they in self-isolation? Are they in isolation in hospital? What's happening before we know the outcome of those tests? Well, I'm going to ask Dr. Villa to comment on that, but generally the, the public health official and that person seeing with them, and including the health official, will give them advice depending on their situation and their signs and symptoms. Most of the time it's to stay at home because they're unwell, as we've been heard. You should stay at home and do self-isolation. That means limit your contact with family members, uh, the public, etc. There's different things you can give advice on. So while that's pending, if they have enough to merit a travel history as well as signs and symptoms, we would expect them to be following those uh, ideas and whether Dr. Bill wants to comment further um, because they're involved in a number of people under investigation uh, management cases. That is Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, part of a press conference currently underway at Queen's Park as health officials update the public on what is the latest with coronavirus. As you heard in the news and off the top of this program, we now have a confirmed case in hospital. We have a second presumptive case that is being uh, self-isolated at home. Here is the beginning of the press conference and back to Dr. David Williams with more on what has happened since that passenger arrived. Since arriving in Toronto, this individual has been in self-isolation. As such, the risk to Ontarians remains low. Indeed, all necessary protocols are in place to actively monitor, detect and contain the spread of this virus. 
That is the doctor, uh, the Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, speaking this morning at a press conference at Queen's Park. And that raises the question when you talk about protocols in place. Uh, many asking questions, why was it that paramedics that transported uh, this person to hospital were not informed of it, they were not aware that they had a person with a presumptive case that has now been confirmed as a confirmed case of coronavirus. Here is Dr. Barbara Yaffe talking about a change in the protocols. As of this morning, yeah, thank you. Ontario implemented enhanced screening measures at all emergency medical services communication centres to help identify potential cases of this Wuhan novel coronavirus before dispatching paramedics. That is Dr. Barbara Yaffe, who is the Associate Chief Medical Officer of Health. And time and time again in this press conference this morning, health officials have urged calm. Be calm. Here is Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Arlene DeVillas, saying that she understands that you are frightened by this. Now we understand that when we're talking about a novel uh, virus, an emerging infectious disease, that this gives rise to certain un- you know, uncertainties um, and uh, some many questions as a result. A relatively new virus, only identified about a month ago, um, and still much learning that's happening uh, through the various uh, investigations as different health authorities all around the world, including those in China, investigate their respective cases. That is the Toronto Medical Officer of Health talking about the fact that there is concern in the community and reports from some outlets now, this from BlogTO this morning, that in the wake of the news of the now one now confirmed and second suspected case of coronavirus, that stores in the city have now run out of N95 respirator masks. And 95 respirator masks, which cover the face and protect you from breathing in dangerous particles, have been flying off the shelves. But the experts say it doesn't really do anything. They don't do anything anyway. Here is Dr. Brett Belchez, who is a regular contributor to this radio station. He is an emergency doctor in Toronto, talking about what he's seeing in the ER and how absolutely ridiculous it is. We're seeing a lot of people who are... Uh, rushing to ask for testing for this. We're also seeing, you know, people out in the community taking unnecessary steps, uh, you know, people wearing surgical masks when they're walking in the streets. Uh, I was on an airplane a couple of days ago where uh, I saw at least a dozen different passengers who were wearing surgical masks, which, uh, to be completely clear, offer no protection against this virus whatsoever. Um, So we certainly are seeing a a lot of uh, uh, anxiety and a lot of overreaction and a lot of the reaction that is probably not the most helpful reaction to contain this or to protect yourself. That is Dr. Brett Belchitz, who is an emergency room doctor here in Toronto. I can tell you from this press conference, it was revealed this morning that both the husband, who is at Sunnybrook with the confirmed coronavirus case, and the wife, who is in self-isolation, both were wearing masks on their flight home from China last week. And officials obviously still in the process of identifying everyone who is on that flight, monitoring them, and making sure that they are in self-isolation. But how are we expected to be calm when we hear what's happening in China, where China is increasingly taking drastic steps? It has now pushed the end of this week's Lunar New Year holiday to Sunday, trying to keep people at home. Here's reporter Ian Pinnell from Hong Kong. 
The country now rushing to build two new hospitals in a matter of days. The mayor of Wuhan, where the outbreak started, offering to resign and admitting there was a delay in releasing information, saying he was waiting for approval from Beijing. A lockdown that began in Wuhan has now expanded to encompass more than 50 million people in 17 cities. Global stock markets falling today as that lockdown stifles travel, shopping, and business for millions upon millions of people. And there are so many questions about what the Chinese authorities did or did not know. How open are they being with the world about what's happening there? Meanwhile, the mayor of Markham, Frank Scarpetti, has called on the federal government here to implement enhanced screening measures at Canadian airports, far beyond what has been done so far. Here is Mayor Frank Scarpetti. Accolades to the city of Wuhan for stopping all of the outbound uh, air, air flights uh, out of Wuhan. I think that was very proactive. Uh, that being said, we're, we're seeing that additional measures are taking, be, being taken in U.S. airports, and I'm kind of calling for the same thing here. So are we doing enough here in Toronto? Are we doing enough in Ontario to protect people? Let's get back to that press conference still underway at Queen's Park. From a public health perspective, in order to prevent transmission of diseases. And, I, and sorry, I would, add, I would add to that is that public health will assess each situation. If an individual is in self-isolation for a period of time, they'll assess, is there, what's their capacity to do so? Do they need some assistance because they may want food, they may need help? There's things you can do so they're not forced to go back out in the public and break that self-isolation. So each situation is unique, but you have to understand the, the client and make sure you address that and meet their needs because we're there to help them, to rule in or rule out. They want to find out, we want to find out, and their cooperation and participation is vitally important and we want to assist in that. I want to go to the gentleman at the back here who's been waiting patiently. I'm just wondering if Dr. Davila could take us through how many investigators you have at Toronto Public Health actually out there trying to find out how many people could be affected by this, and also if Dr. Williams and Dr. Yaffe might be able to uh, say the same thing outside the city. That's a question there from uh, Matt so Bingley from I Global can, News. I can give you an exact number. We certainly have a team that's specifically identified to do this work. Uh, and, in fact, we've pulled extra resources. We're actually uh, making sure that uh, the team is well-staffed. I would also say to you that we do work in partnership with other local public health units. Uh, and so over and above the collaboration and the continuous communication that has happened between ourselves at Toronto Public Health, the province, Public Health Ontario, and the federal partners, we've also had regular communications with our partners from other local public health units as needed. And I would add that, as Dr. DeVille noted, the province is doing their part and also working very tightly with the federal government to say, how do we get as much information as Dr. DeVille and her staff need as quickly as possible to undertake this important job? And so we're trying to equip our local public health departments with what they need to know to do this job. So, so there's the lots of people on the ground. taken at schools. I know during SARS there was extra money put into schools and they took extra precautions with extra cleaning. Are we at that stage where anything extra needs to be done in schools today? No, at this stage we, unlike SARS, <clears throat> we don't have it widely circulating in the community. We have our case management that we're carrying out here. If there was concerns, Dr. Davila or myself or Dr. Yaffe would be telling them so. At this time, there's still lots of respiratory viruses out there. There's lots of influenza-like illness. Our rules are still the same. If your child is ill, keep them at home. 
because you want to protect your child, let them get better, they may have to be assessed. At the same time, you don't want the other children to be infected by your child, whether it's influenza or anything else. That is Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, saying that the coronavirus is not widely circulating in the population. This after the confirmation of a case of the coronavirus, one person in hospital with coronavirus, others under watch, under self-isolation, as we try and figure out whether or not there are more cases. Welcome back to the program. It is expected to take take a number of days for officials to recover the bodies of former NBA star Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, and seven others from a helicopter crash outside of Los Angeles. The L.A. County Chief Medical Examiner says the next priority after recovery is identification and then notifying the families involved. Molly Knight is a journalist who writes for The Athletic L.A. and was on scene in Los Angeles yesterday and joins us now by by phone. Hi, Molly. Hi, thanks for having me. What can you tell us about the latest in the investigation and and what is being said in Los Angeles? Well, what's being said in Los Angeles right now is just an absolutely devastating um, day. Now we're into day two on this. I've never seen the city, uh, a city grieve like this, the city grieve like this. Um, People are just, I mean, I've seen people just stop their cars, pull off the, the road if they see little Kobe Kobe murals or Kobe um, tributes and just stand there. People are walking around in the days. I mean, this is a city of stars, and he was the biggest star in the city. And so it's just it's just it's just mind boggling that this has happened. Much of the investigation in the early going will be focused on weather and reports of fog. As I mentioned, you were on scene yesterday. Tell us about what the conditions were like. Yeah, it was. It did seem a bit foggy yesterday morning. It's not unusual. I mean, we live near the ocean, and there's frequently what's known as a marine layer that comes in um, in the morning and then in the evenings. Um, So, so yeah, it wasn't raining. Um, It wasn't... um, dark, uh, like dark, dark skies, but, um, but fog, it seems as though fog played a factor. I'm not, I mean, I'm not part of the NTSB, so I don't know for sure, but it would be pretty, in my mind, unless the the way that that, that part of the, um, of the county is laid out, the, the freeway, the 101, which goes all the way from, um, Los Angeles up through San Francisco, um, this crash, and it's a pretty wide freeway and it's, um, pretty easy to follow, if you were lost or something was, was going on, this crash happened um, just not too far um, to the west of the 101 towards the ocean. There's some there's some hills there. It's basically the 101 and then hills and then ocean. So it, to me, it seems like either, um, and it would be a strange place to try to make an emergency landing I, in a hill. I'm not sure. So to me, it seems almost like there was either some kind of a mechanical failure or or it was too far to see um, where where he was going. We're speaking with Molly Knight, who is a reporter in Los Angeles and a journalist for The Athletic LA. Uh, tell me about some of the memorials that have popped up and what's been happening outside of Staples. Yeah, so first of all, at the crash site yesterday, well, when I say the crash site, I mean, the crash happened up in the hills, so the closest you could get was an intersection out in Calabasas where hundreds of fans gathered and police were sectioning them off. I mean, it was pretty surreal because when I got there about an, about an hour after um, after the crash, the wreckage was still um, smoldering, and you could see that from the street. So 
you had uh, Laker Laker fans showing up in their jerseys and 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 in disbelief, but then they could also see, I mean, what looked to be a, t- a horrific accident. So you had people in disbelief, but then you had people looking and realizing that it was probably an accident that that was not not survivable. Um, so again, you had purple and gold jerseys, number 24, number eight, you had people holding hands, you had people crying, you had people hugging, you had people just really just standing there shocked. Um, and then down, um, at the Staples Center downtown, which is about a good 30 miles, um, to the Southeast, um, people streamed down there. It was kind of a weird situation because the Grammys were being held there last night. So it was, um, already blocked off and, and people were, celebrities were arriving for that. I mean, that was just another truly surreal event where it's the, it's the house that Kobe Bryant built. It opened in 2000, and, and he, that was you know, perfectly overlapped with his career there. His jersey hangs in the rafters. Both of his jerseys hang in the rafters. And, and um, you know, this town, the Lakers, the Lakers run this town. Uh, every, all the celebs who live here love the Lakers, and they were all showing up just devastated as well. Um, fans are... Uh, leaving candles, leaving jerseys, leaving basketballs, murals are popping up. I saw a woman standing over the 101 freeway overpass, just holding a big Kobe, um, a huge Kobe poster to, to all the motorists who were driving below. It's just been, um, it's just been an outpouring of grief. We've got a lot of great artists in the city, a lot of great street artists um, who I believe will be are, are probably really busy right now, um, creating some phenomenal artwork that we'll see very soon. Molly Knight is a reporter in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me. To get more of a perspective on what possibly could have happened with that helicopter flight, the helicopter in question was built in 1991. It had departed from the John Wayne Airport at 9.06 a.m. Sunday, according to a publicly available flight record. It crashed, or at least the authorities received a 911 call at 9.47. To talk more about what we know about this kind of helicopter, I'm joined by Mary Shavo, who is an aviation expert. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So much of the early going is focused on whether do we have any sense here, what kind of instrumentation would be on a helicopter like this in terms of flying in zero or no visibility? Well, this is a helicopter uh, that's pretty sophisticated, and and I think probably the best way to tell folks what this is like is this is a sister to the Black Hawk helicopters, you know, the highly sophisticated helicopters, the helicopters that were used by the United States to go in and get Osama bin Laden, the helicopters that the Night Raiders used. So this is a very, uh, very good helicopter. It's a very advanced helicopter, but... No aircraft. Helicopter, you know, 787 is good unless you do two, three things. You've got to have good maintenance. You've got to have, you know, pilots that follow all the rules. And you have to have, you know, the proper clearances, use IFR when necessary, et cetera. So, you know, from the radar tracings, it looks like they were circling over downtown L.A. at a very low altitude. Uh, to me, that's telling that they were trying to stay under the cloud layer, uh, and then they headed up towards Calabasas, but then they turned left out to a non-populated area. I used to live in L.A., and this area where they went down, lots of parks, uh, wooded parks, not children's parks, hiking trails, etc. And then there are reports that the uh, helicopter did a rapid climb 
before then it dove to the ground. So there's not enough known yet of the, the sequence, but, um, you know, so at this point you could say it could be a mechanical or it could be pilot air, which is what flying into fog will be deemed. Mary, much is being made at this point that a local police uh, detachment had grounded their choppers because of weather. What do you read into that? Well, that's significant. You know, I've litigated so many crashes and crashes of Black Hawk helicopters, but most of the ones I've litigated were military uh, helicopters, oil rig helicopters, things like that. Because in passenger service, ordinarily, now let's let's use airlines for example. Um, commercial airlines must at all times fly under air traffic control. They can do visual approaches and, you know, and, and visual departures, but they have to have flight plans and they have to follow them. So for helicopters that are used to doing sightseeing tours, and this company that has this helicopter in its pool of helicopters does a lot of sightseeing tours, like to Catalina Island off of, of Los Angeles, a lovely place. And so a lot of times they're used to flying VFR, visual flight rules, which means exactly what it sounds like. You look out the window and you fly where you're looking. And that's extremely dangerous when the weather's deteriorating. And I can't tell you how many crashes I've worked where people went up in VFR conditions and then found themselves in what's called instrument flight rules, meaning you're in really bad weather and it's not legal to fly. But the conundrum is this. You took off legally in VFR, but then the weather deteriorated and you're in IFR. Legally, you got to get out of it, but sometimes there's nowhere to go. Mary, what's next in terms of the investigation? What do you expect? Well, the NTSB sent a pretty large team out, um, and that's at their discretion. You know, there are lots of small plane crashes in the United States that really don't get an NTSB investigation. So this will receive a full investigation. Um, already they have pulled all of the radar tapes, the air traffic control tapes, uh, you know, what was said back and forth. There's a rumor that there was a, uh, a data recorder on this helicopter. That would be unusual, but if there was, they would have that information. And if there's a voice recorder, that in this case might be the most valuable thing at all because you will hear the pilot saying, oh, we're, we got to get out of this. We got to get out of this fog. You know, we're not, we didn't file an instrument flight rules uh, flight plan. Um, I can't find any place to put it down. I mean, it's possible that they were trying to set it down, you know, on that road in the unpopulated area. That's just a pure guess on my part. But the length of time that they were were uh, circling over near downtown Los Angeles, which, you know, has a fair number of, of skyscrapers, and uh, they were in a very, very small window, so obviously the NTSB will, will be looking very closely at what happened there and when they decided to depart that area and head for Calabasas. And then, of course, they'll look at the maintenance records of that uh, of that helicopter. Um, you know, I've had cases where things have gone wrong with the engines, with the rotors. In one case, I had the seats came unattached. So anything could be wrong with it, but the NTSB will look at every single aspect. Mary Schiavo is an aviation expert. Thank you so much for your perspective. Thank you.
Welcome back to the program. An ongoing press conference at Queens Park updating the public about the coronavirus. We now have confirmation of one case of coronavirus who is in isolation in hospital. A second suspected case is in self-isolation. Let's take you back live to that press conference. That's why we have that at this stage of the game. That is the major risk factor. So that's why that's part of the case definition, um, and it's part of what underpins the testing, what generates the, the need for testing. So I think that's the major focus we should be looking at at this stage of the game. Okay, so I'm asking about whether these people were on the same flight or a different flight, the, the suspected 19 cases. So I think as, as the investigation proceeds with each of those, we'll be able to better articulate what the circumstances are. That is Dr. Barbara Yaffe, who is the Associate Medical Officer of Health, talking about the people that were on the flight that uh, with the person who now has the confirmed case. Uh, that person's wife is the suspected second case, and now we have these other cases which are being monitored right now. More information coming out on that, but I want to turn my eye to what is happening in China, where China has now confirmed 2,700 cases of the virus, 80 deaths. Most have been in Wuhan, where the illness first surfaced. The city of 11 million residents is under a strict travel ban. It is mostly deserted. Financial Times reporter Tom Hancock is in Wuhan. Uh, also because cars, private vehicles have been banned from the roads over the last day. And um, the only cars you see on the street are a small number of vehicles which are taking people who suspect that they have symptoms of uh, a virus or some kind of illness to hospital. That is Financial Times reporter Tom Hancock in Wuhan. Now, China has extended the week-long Lunar New Year holiday by three days to help prevent the epidemic from spreading. That is an extraordinary measure. Meanwhile, in places like Hong Kong, they are preparing for things to get worse. ABC's Ian Pinnell has more from Hong Kong. There have been plans set up to establish quarantine zones. Those were attacked uh, overnight by protesters because they don't want people who are potentially infected in their neighbourhoods. And of course, we have a number of cases here. So Hong Kong is on high alert. This fell right as the Lunar New Year happened. This is like Thanksgiving and the end of year holidays all rolled into one. You literally have hundreds of millions of people on the move. And that, of course, has made the situation much, much worse. Meanwhile, in China, China's second highest ranking official, Premier Li Keqiang on Monday visited Wuhan. The Premier's visit comes as the central government is under increasing pressure now to prove that it is adequately coping with this crisis. Videos have circulated on Chinese social media showing doctors straining to handle the enormous workload and hospital corridors loaded with patients, some of whom appear to be dead. There are rare signs of public anger on social media as Wuhan residents have been complaining that this ban on cars in the city has left so many unable to get access to food or even to hospitals. And while the U.S. consulate in Wuhan has announced plans to evacuate Americans from that city at the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, saying Sunday the Canadian government does not have at this time any plans to evacuate Canadian citizens. And a British teacher is hoping to get his Canadian wife, who is pregnant with their child. And they have a second child. They are in Wuhan right now. Tom Williams has been living in Wuhan for about five years. 
feel that other countries need to kind of follow suit now, particularly for people who are at higher risk, right? Like, if I have to stay behind, so be it. But, you know, this is people's lives at the end of the day, and we need to, um, if we can get out, try and get out so that my wife can be guaranteed a safe birth. That is Tom Williams, whose wife is Canadian. She is pregnant. They are in Wuhan, and he is concerned that although things seem calm in Wuhan right now, the picture is rapidly changing, and the situation is becoming more risky. As you heard, Americans are evacuating their citizens. How long until Canada does the same? Welcome back to the program. So much to talk about this hour on this day. Today, we mark the liberation of Auschwitz, and survivors of the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp have gathered in Europe for commemorations to mark the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the camp by the Soviet army. The ceremony today stressing the testimony of survivors, and it included warnings about the signs of rising anti-Semitism and hatred in the world today. There are about 200 survivors of the camp who attended that ceremony today. Many of them lost their parents, their grandparents in Auschwitz or other Nazi death camps. Even children and their children and great-grandchildren, pardon me, are with them today. Here is Holocaust survivor Benjamin Lesser recounting some of the horrors of Auschwitz. After they killed you in the gas chambers, they cut your hair, they pulled out your gold teeth, and they put you on gurneys... But infants, they couldn't be bothered. The infants had no gold teeth. They had no hair. So they threw them on the trucks, on dump trucks, on top of the half-dead bodies. And they threw them then into fiery pits. That is Benjamin Lesser recounting the horrors at Auschwitz. Now, politics, unfortunately, have marred this remembrance today because the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, was not there. He took part in a remembrance ceremony in Israel last week. Now, here's the background, what you may and may not remember from history lessons in high school or wherever you last studied history. Soviet forces, as I mentioned, liberated Auschwitz on January 27th of 1945. But go back before the war, and you may recall something called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. It was signed between Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany, and it contained a secret protocol in which the totalitarian powers agreed to carve up Eastern Europe, Poland especially. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has sought to shift wartime blame to Poland over anger in Russia, that historical memory in the West has begun more and more to focus on the Soviet role in triggering the war and less on its role in actually defeating Nazi Germany. At the same time, Poland has come under criticism for allegedly minimizing the role of its own people and the role its own government took in helping Nazis kill Jews. This is from Walter Reich, a professor and former director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, who writes in The Atlantic today, Anti-Semitism has returned, in part because the general public's knowledge about the Holocaust, of what exactly it was, who exactly was murdered in it, how many were killed, and how anti-Semitism spawned it, has diminished. To talk more about the importance of remembering, especially in these troubled times, 
I'm joined by Avi Ben-Lolo, president of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies, and Eva Carpati, president of the National Council of Jewish Women of Canada. Thank you, and welcome to you both to the program. Thank you for having me. Avi, I will begin with you with what is talked about as the rise of anti-Semitism, especially in Europe. Do you agree with what I've just read from Walter Reich, that it is a lessening of knowledge of the Holocaust which is leading to this? Well, I think uh, I, I agree I, on, on one hand and uh, somewhat disagree on the other hand. Uh, firstly, it's uh, great to know that a lot of people do know about the Holocaust. Um, you know, studies show that... Um, you know, there is a high rate of knowledge about the Holocaust. However, they don't know it in detail. And I think that that's what uh, he's implying. Um, you know, the issue with respect to the Holocaust is, and, and the rising tide of anti-Semitism is understanding what led to the Holocaust, which was centuries of persecution of the Jewish people. And we're, we're talking about 2,000 years of, of uh, being accused of deicide, of, of uh, being accused of poisoning the wells, of being accused of uh, fomenting the Black uh, Plague, of the Spanish Inquisition, where Jews uh, were told to leave Spain or convert to, uh, to Christianity or, or die at, at, the, at the stake. And so, and so, you know, there were centuries of this persecution of the Jews and so by the time Hitler came to power and the Nazi regime, uh, the public at large were fairly soft on, on anti-Semitism, and they were, um, you know, aligned with that theory that Jews are, are uh, subhuman, that Jews uh, should be marginalized, that Jews should be isolated. And that was what triggered and helped trigger um, his intention to murder, murder the Jews. And so that is the anti-Semitism that we're seeing resurrected again today. Eva, do you sense a weaponization of words, a dehumanization of not only of Jews, but other marginalized societies today? I think we've lost Eva from the line, but Avi, we'll go back to you and with the same question to you. Um, sorry, the question was about uh, dehumanization. Um, and the yes. weaponization of words, because in, in many ways what you've talked about is a century of dehumanization of a identifiable minority. Yeah, essentially, uh, you know, what you want to do if you want to, you know, murder somebody in a specific group leading to a genocide, you have to dehumanize them in the eyes of the public. And that's exactly what anti-Semitism is. It's a form of, of hatred, racism, uh, discrimination that aims to marginalize, dehumanize, and, and really um, uh, weaponize uh, the, the notion that this group must be targeted and must be murdered. And so what we're seeing today, you know, where is where the Nazis portrayed uh, Jews from a racist point of view um, in terms in terms of the physicality of it. Today, uh, what we're seeing is Jews being uh, sidelined and marginalized because of their nationality, you know, aligned with with Israel. And so, uh, Israel now is the, uh, the the Jewish nation or the Jew amongst nations, if you will. 
And so uh, some say that's politicized, but it is another form of anti-Semitism that we're seeing that is creeping up into mainstream society. And I think Eva is back with us, Eva Karpati from the National Council of Jewish Women. What is your perspective when you hear these reports of a rise in anti-Semitism? Is that what you hear from your constituents? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I I apologize for not hearing the conversation, but um, that it is insidious because um, social media has allowed ways for it to to foster and manifest in ways that aren't even that overt, which is probably even more insidious, um, and affecting our youth in universities. So on that level... um, reaching out to both spectrums, those who are we, we are about to use, lose, who've been, um, you know, families decimated and killed because they're being, um, they were Jews to young people today who are being othered and called out because of their religion is, is terrifying. So we're, we're, impacted on both spectrums of our population. Eva, as we look at the images today from the 75th anniversary, I'm wondering if it is just the passage of time and that we seem so disconnected from those horrifying images in black and white that we we have a hard time imagining that it could ever possibly happen again. Um, absolutely, and as um, might have been alluded to, that the existing survivors are so few and far between. Um, I am blessed to say that my mother, um, a Holocaust survivor, is still alive, and she's here to speak about it, and it becomes even more poignant. And as we know, it's um, we can so easily be depersonalized, and that personal connection is vital, vital, and that's why um, as each year passes becomes more, more important that we um, acknowledge what did exist with real people. Uh, Avi, last question to you here. Are you concerned about this dialogue and this sort of fight back and forth between Poland and Russia about the causes and the outbreak of the war, that that will diminish the remembrance of the Holocaust? Uh, yeah, we're, we're absolutely concerned about this uh, this fight. It's really the politicization of, of uh, the Holocaust. And, you know, the Jewish people were murdered at the end of the day, uh, six million of us. Um, and so for us, you know, tarnishing that memory because of politics is completely inappropriate. Um, what happened is very serious uh, to remember. Um, you know, one and a half million children were murdered uh, in these camps. Uh, and, and so we cannot tarnish, the world cannot tarnish the, uh, the history that took place in the Holocaust uh, because of politics or narratives. Um, you know, everybody must realize what happened and take action to that effect. Avi Benlolo is the president of the Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies. Eva Karpati, president of National Council of Jewish Women of Canada. Thank you to you both for being on the program. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, it has been a tough Monday. From Kobe to Holocaust remembrance to concern about a coronavirus, it has been a tough start to the week. So how's about a beat? This, because everybody needs a couple of bad jokes in their life. Here are a series of really terrible jokes that I have stolen from Reader's Digest. 
What's the best thing about Switzerland? I don't know, but the flag is a big plus. Why do we tell actors to break a leg? Because every play has a cast. Hear about the new restaurant called Karma? There's no menu. You get what you deserve. Did you hear about the claustrophobic astronaut? He just needed a little space. And finally today, on a blue Monday, your joke of the day. Why don't scientists trust atoms? Because they make up everything.